Well, now we're going to come to our reading this morning. So if you do have a Bible, uh, feel free to go and grab that now. Uh, We'll be going to uh, Genesis 47. But if you don't have a Bible, uh, the reference will be down in the description below. It will take you to the website with the passage that we're reading this morning. And uh, Peter and Caroline are going to be taking us through our passage this morning. So over to you. Genesis 46 verse 28 to Genesis 47 verse 13. Now Jacob sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to get directions to Goshen. When they arrived in the region of Goshen, Joseph had his chariot made ready and went to Goshen to meet his father Israel. As soon as Joseph appeared before him, he threw his arms around his father and wept for a long time. Israel said to Joseph, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household, who were living in the land of Canaan, have come to me. The men are shepherds, they tend livestock, and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers, with their flocks and herds and everything they own, have come from the land of Canaan, and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked brothers, What is the occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They said, also said to him, We have come to live here for a while, because the famine is severe in Canaan, and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now, please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you, and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen, and if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are a hundred and thirty. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out with his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Bamises, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. There was no food, however, in the whole region, because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food! Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is all gone. And Genesis 47, 28 to 48, 9. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for, near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favour in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt, but when I rest my uh, rest with my father's, Carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I'll do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said, that uh, then 
Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on his on top of his staff. Some time later, Joseph was told, "Your father is ill," so he took his two sons, Manash and Ephraim, along with him. When Jacob was told, "Your son Joseph has come to you," Israel rallied his strength and sat up on, on his bed. Jacob said to Joseph, "God Almighty appeared to me at Luz and in, in the land of Canaan." And there, there he blessed me and said to me, I'm going to make you fruitful and increase your numbers. I'll make you a community of peoples and I'll give you this, this land as an everlasting possession of, um, to your descendants after you. Now then, now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before, before I came to you here will be um, reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manash uh, will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Any children born to you after them will be yours. In the territory they inherit, they will be reckoned under the names of their brothers. As I was returning to Paden, um, to my sorrow, Rachel um, died in the land of Canaan. While we were still on our way, a little distance from Ephra, um, so I buried her beside the road at Ephra. That's, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw the sons of Joseph, he asked, Who are these? They are the sons of God, has given me. Joseph said to his father, then Israel said, bring them to me, so, may I, so I may bless them. In January 2000, Albert Einstein was honoured as man of the 20th century by Time magazine. And arguably, uh, he rightly deserved the title for all that he'd achieved. But even he, the great scientist, famously had his limitations. On one occasion, he was travelling on a train in the US when the ticket inspector came down the aisle checking tickets. When he came to Einstein, Einstein reached, reached into his jacket pocket but couldn't find his ticket. So he tried all his other pockets, but still he couldn't find that ticket. So he looked in his briefcase and it wasn't there either. Then the inspector said, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. We all know who you are. I'm sure you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. Einstein nodded his thanks and the inspector continued down the carriage looking at tickets. As he was about to move into the next carriage, the inspector turned round and saw Einstein on his hands and knees, looking under his seat. So he rushed back to him and said, Dr. Einstein, don't worry, I know who you are. There is no problem. You don't need a ticket. I'm sure you've bought one. And then Einstein looked at him and said, young man, I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I'm going. Now, it's a story that introduces the themes at the heart of these two chapters that we're looking at this morning. You see, in the chapters we're looking at, we're told about God's people who, like Einstein, know exactly who they are. But better than Einstein, on his train, they know where they're going. And it's a point that is so relevant for our times. Because when our world is turned upside down, like it has been over the past few months and will be for the foreseeable future, when we are beset with uncertainty, not knowing how to live day by day, we as God's people today need to remember who we are and where we're going. And history tells us that when we as God's people remember who we are and where we're going, well, that's when we begin to live like we're God's people and a people who belong to God's kingdom. And, you know, the Bible tells us people around us will notice that. The worldview in and of itself um, is a witness to the gospel work 
in us. So we're going to look at uh, at these two chapters together. And the first point I, I really want to make is simply know where your home is. Know where your home is. Now, Joseph doesn't just settle his family in a foreign corner of Egypt. He shelters them there in the best of the land. And he secures that land by representing them before Pharaoh. Look with me at chapter 46, verse 31. It says this. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were living in the land of Canaan have come to me. It's an important meeting. Without it, Jacob and his family would be unwelcome. A lot of things were against them. Egyptians were suspicious of foreigners, especially ones from the east. Added to that, Egyptians thought shepherds like Jacob's family were unclean. And Jacob's family were also about to settle in a country that was already under a great burden of famine. So they would be resented if they were to be settling there at all. So this meeting that Joseph has with Pharaoh is important. It's important to have Pharaoh's approval. So Joseph, in, in, in verse 47, 1 and 2, uh, goes and tells Pharaoh, My father and brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asks what they do. And this is their reply in verses 3 and 4. Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, we have come to live here for a while because the family is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. It's a telling comment about their worldview. You see, they see themselves as people sheltering from the famine that threatened the whole world. They were not there for good. Their understanding was this was going to be a temporary arrangement. In other words, they didn't belong in Egypt. And yet because of Jacob, Joseph's faithfulness to Pharaoh, Pharaoh gives them the best of the land for their flocks and he gives them his permission. And that would have amounted to Pharaoh's protection over them. And then we're told this in verses 11 and 12. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramesses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. So Joseph shelters them from famine that was uh, that was decimating the whole land of Egypt. And then the account goes on to record how desperate the drought became for the next few years. Look with me at verse 13. There was no food in the whole land because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. And what follows is a long and detailed account of how dreadful the famine was for Egypt. But all the while, in the midst of the famine, the people of Israel were in the best part of the land, sheltered by and provided for by Joseph. And I think one of the reasons why the passage is so detailed about the famine raging through Egypt 
is because the writer wants us to see how limited Egypt is as a final destination compared to the promised land. We have to remember that God's promise to Jacob was still ringing in Jacob's ears as he went and settled in the land of Goshen. For Jacob's family, the hope of returning to the promised land was still fresh in their minds. So that was where their hope was. They were travellers merely passing through. And as the famine raged around them, God's plan meant they had a greater hope, a greater land that they knew one day would be theirs. And that's so important to remember because they could very well have seen Egypt as home. They could have forgotten God's promises to them and settled in the land of Egypt and mingled with the Egyptians and become Egyptians themselves. They could have seen Egypt itself as the promised land and they could have forgotten where God was taking them. That's why God exposes Egypt's limitations in this famine. God wanted his people to see how foolish it is to settle for anything less other than God's promises. Let me explain further. Egypt at the time was the superpower of the world. Everybody wanted to be Egyptian. Everybody wanted to live there and belong. It was a bit like being British in the days of the empire. To be, a, to be Egyptian in those days commanded respect and envy. So it would have been tempting for Jacob and his family to start name dropping. For Jacob to go around saying, yeah, you know, um, uh, the most powerful man in Egypt, Joseph, um, well, he's my son. Yeah, we, 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 we own this place, actually. So bit of respect, please. Or they could have coveted all the comfort that Joseph had provided for them. And they could have lost sight of what God had promised them. But right through these chapters, Jacob fixes his heart and mind on God's promises, the place where God intended him to be and bless him. That's why in 47 verse 4, he says to Pharaoh, we've only come here for a little while. In 48 verse 4, he recalls God's promises that God would give them a land as an everlasting possession. And in 47 verse 29, he asks Joseph to bury him in the land that God has promised them. Jacob's heart is fully trusting and fully hoping in God's promises for his people to give them a land which there would be theirs for eternity. He does not consider Egypt as his land. And that worldview means that when famine comes upon Egypt, it does not destroy God's people. Because God's people don't belong to Egypt. Their suffering is not the same because they have a higher hope. They have a greater hope, a final destination that will not perish, spoil or fade in spite of their current suffering. So there's a massive contrast in this passage between Egypt and Jacob's family. God dealt with Egypt and brought a famine so severe that all of Egypt was on its knees, begging God's saviour, Joseph, for salvation. It's a humbling picture, isn't it? The greatest superpower of its time found itself begging at the feet of the humblest shepherd of Jacob's family, a foreigner who did not belong there. And yet Jacob's family were sheltered from the famine by God's saviour, Joseph. He provided shelter for them by taking the cost upon himself. And it's a picture of what it means to belong to God's kingdom. Because in the same way 
that Joseph deals shrewdly with Egypt. When God's judgment falls, the Bible tells us that Jesus will deal shrewdly with those who have rejected him on the day of judgment. Because on the day of judgment, our hearts will be exposed for where they belong. And unless our hearts are fully and wholly set on belonging to Jesus' kingdom, we will be exposed as and judged in the same way that Egypt was. And yet in this picture, there's also an invitation that, that just like Jacob's family was protected from the, the famine by sheltering under the mercy of God's saviour, Joseph. Jesus, our saviour of the world, shelters all who trust in him from the dreadful, dreadful day of judgment. And his invitation is that if you do not know for certain what will happen to you when he returns, when judgment day comes, then turn to him, talk to him, ask him to be your saviour and your Lord to shelter you from that judgment. Ask him to represent you before the highest authority, God the Father, and shelter you from judgment and give you an eternal hope and home. And he loves us. So when we ask him, he will give us that. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we ask. So can I encourage you, if you have no idea what's going to happen on that day when he returns, talk to him, ask him to be your Lord and your saviour. But the picture also shows us that for Christians, on the day of judgment, when Jesus returns, we will all be found at the feet of the humblest shepherd who came to this world as a foreigner, and he did not belong to it. He's the great shepherd, the great saviour of the world, and his name is Jesus. So, so when things of this world come crashing down, those who belong to God's kingdom will not be destroyed by that. Because it's not all they have and all they've trusted in. And on the day of judgment, they have an advocate, a shelter, a saviour in whom they can trust. And that's what this picture points to. And if we're Christians this morning, then we have to ask ourselves, where is our home? When we look at our hearts and our attitudes and our behaviours, do they tell us we're living in the light of a higher hope that one day Jesus will return in glory and bring his kingdom rule to this world in renewing power? Does our attitude to material things betray to the world our conviction that there is more to life than stuff? Is our worldview and identity shaped and moulded by the knowledge that this world will one day fade away? This world will one day be replaced by Jesus's kingdom and he will rule in power and might and authority. And it might be that we've lost sight of this perspective, that, that life has just got too busy for it. Or, or our greed for material things has overshadowed the great reality. It might be that life in this world, which is not our final destination, is too comfortable or too exciting or too entertaining or too fulfilling for us to remember that we are headed for a higher place. What would you know, perhaps Jacob's longing for God's promised land reminds us of where our hearts need to be and reminds us of how loosely we need to hold the values of this world. And it might be that we have to take time this morning after the service to press a reset button in our hearts to remind ourselves of the promised land that we belong to. And if we have started to live like we belong to Egypt, we need to say sorry to Jesus and we need to ask him to rule our hearts once more. We need to live the hope that Jesus has given us through his death and his resurrection. 
And let's remind ourselves of what an incredible privilege the Christian hope is, because it's unique in this world. Atheism has nothing to look forward to after death. And for the agnostic and every other religion in the world, there is no certainty in death. It seems that everybody, apart from Christians, are facing death by crossing their fingers and hoping they've done enough to please God. But Christian hope is based on history because God has come into history and died and risen again and promised that all who trust in him will also rise again. Well, they will do when he returns. Those who trust in Jesus have a historical assurance that when we face God, when we die, we will be facing our Saviour and our Lord. And not only is our hope historical, but it's also experiential. Because the Bible promises us that all who trust in Jesus are given the Holy Spirit and he testifies to the future glory of the kingdom of God and he guarantees our eternal life. This is the home we're going to. Let's seek to remember that and to live it and to remind each other of it. We do not belong in this world. We do not belong to the values of this world. We belong to the promised land. We belong to the place where Jesus will reign forever and ever and ever, to the place where his face will be physically visible for all of us to see, and we will live with him for eternity. So to live for Egypt, for the values of this world, is nonsense. To live for God's promised land, that is an eternal future fixed point. And may we have it in our hearts, may we have it in our minds, may we have it in our worldview and put aside the things of this world. But this brings us uh, to our second point, which is know who your people are. Know who your people are. So Joseph hears um, that Jacob was dying and he, he rushes to his father's side with his two sons in tow. You see, although he's governor of Egypt, he doesn't want to be considered an Egyptian. He, he wanted to identify himself and his descendants with the people of God and God's promises to them. So his purpose in bringing his sons to Jacob was that he wanted them to be part of the promised covenant of Israel. And Jacob honours that faith by adopting Joseph's sons in the following verses. Look with me at verses uh, 48, um, verse 5, uh, chapter 48, verse 5. Now then, your two sons born to you in Egypt before I came to you here will be reckoned as mine. Ephraim and Manasseh will be mine, just as Reuben and Simeon are mine. Jacob is concerned to see God's word fulfilled. So he wants to see his descendants grow into a community of peoples that God had promised they would become. That's what this blessing is about. And it's so important that later on, all the sons of Jacob gather round Jacob to receive his blessing too. You see, Jacob was looking to the future. And he does it because he trusts in God's word. Verse four, as we read earlier, not just talks about land, but it also talks about a people whom God would bless and make into a great nation. So in blessing these grandsons in chapter 48 and his own sons in chapter 49, Jacob is establishing a people not just for the present, but for the future. 
a people who would grow into a great nation. Jacob believed in God's promise. And the writers of the New Testament tell us this is a pattern of faith to follow. Hebrews chapter 11 is that great chapter in the Bible that lists out some of the great examples of the certainty that God's people had in trusting in God's plans. And the great tool that the writer of Hebrews uses is that repeated phrase, by faith this, by faith that, by faith this person did that and believed that. In other words, what characterises people who belong to God's family is that they are a people of faith, a trusting people who trust God to fulfil his promises. So Hebrews 11.21 uses Jacob as an example of this faith. It says this, by faith. Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leant on the top of his staff. In a sense, we have to put ourselves into the story. We, we have to stand by the bedside and look on at Jacob's faith. That's what the writer is asking us to do, because Jacob had, had seen God fulfil his promises to his own sons through all that happened to Joseph, uh, through Joseph, and, and, and God had gathered his sons and was preserving them in Egypt. So here at the end of his life, what he does is he takes the promises that God had given him, he takes God's blessing upon him, and then he pleads that all of that special favour would continue to work amongst his people, growing them into a great nation, till one day God's promises would be fulfilled through the promised saviour of the world. And that's where we stand in history because Jesus has come and by his death and resurrection he brings all those who trust in him into his great nation and into the kingdom of God. If you like we're his people and we belong to his land just like Jacob did and one day we will get to see the completion of that plan and promise when Jesus returns. Until then the imperative is on us to express what it means to us today to belong to God's people. You see, what Jacob does is he expresses that by faith. So he says, I am part of God's family. And as part of God's family, in faith, I'm going to bless the rest of my family so that one day the whole world would be blessed through that blessing. That's his step of faith. That's his expression of belonging to God's people. And God's people today are called to enter into that same expression, not necessarily by placing our hands on one another and blessing each other like Jacob does, but by expressing what it means to be God's family in practical ways. Because when we do that, we are expressing the faith within us that makes us part of God's family. You see, when we're God's family, we see God's family being God's family in very practical ways. Every time we meet as God's people, we do that. Every time we go to our small group or to youth group or to cameo, every time we meet a Christian friend for a coffee, every time we go to church, every time we serve in church, each time we do these things, we remind each other and ourselves of the glorious privilege of being God's people. Each of these are an individual act of faith. Our fellowship with one another is an act of faith. Because as we express fellowship with one another, we also express 
our unity and our unitedness with Jesus, our King. And look, in, in our times, one of the reasons why lockdown has been so hard for many of us is because it's denied us the privilege of experiencing that special faith blessing of belonging to church family. In lockdown, we've been kept from expressing by faith what it means to be God's people meeting together. It's why the government guidelines on opening up the church building are so disappointing, to be quite honest. And by the way, that's nothing against the government. The government is simply trying to prevent a coronavirus from spreading further. But although on one level the guidelines allow us to open up the building, on another those restrictions placed on us means that even if we do meet together, we can't sing together, we can't fellowship together, we can't have those unique expressions of church, family together, meeting all together in one place. And yet at the same time, because we're church family, here's the thing. We can express by faith, by faith, something of what it means to be church family together. And we do that by meeting to each other as much as we can in the ways that the government has allowed us to do. So, so can I encourage us to make the effort this week to reach out to somebody else, to remind them of who we are and where we're going, to remind them that we belong to God's people, to God's family, to God's kingdom, to God's saviour. We belong to God's future that God has in store for us. So, so next Sunday, for example, can I suggest we meet together with one other family for church and, and even do Sunday lunch next week? Try doing those unique things that express our faith in Christ Jesus. So singing together. Turn the volume on the telly up to absolute max and just belt out whatever the Maple Room session is singing. If that really is, doesn't float your boat, I understand. But do other things. Pray together. Talk about the service together. Find a way to express by faith church family together, to fellowship and praise God for that gift of church family and for the reminder of the funeral of, of the future that being church family as God's people points to. Oh, my brothers and sisters, here is the joy that we have. And it's Jacob's joy that by faith, because we have trusted in Jesus, we belong to God's people. And therefore by faith, and because we belong to Jesus, let's step out in faith and express church family with one another. Let's do that with deliberate joy, with deliberate love, with a deliberate sense of reminding one another, uh, this is who we belong to. This is where we're going. You know, we're going to finish um, this service with a, a great song. It's a song that says, there is a day. Uh, it, 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 um, it, it's a thrilling song. It's a day that we've been waiting for, a day of freedom, a day of liberation. It's a day when we will see Jesus. Oh, brothers and sisters, that's what we're living for. That's the future um, that Christ has put in our heart by God, the Holy Spirit. It's the future that we remind each other of every time we express by faith, church family, 
So can I encourage you um, even now um, just to take the opportunity now to sing along with this song um, and turn up the volume of the telly, sing it um, for all it's worth, because the truth is there. There is a day that we are waiting for. Let's sing it together now. <laughs> 